Ryan Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. I'm Ryan Millsap, host of the Black Hall Studios podcast from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm an entrepreneur, mostly by necessity because I have massive authority issues, and also by constitution as the entrepreneurial life is filled with things I love, freedom, adventure, creativity, and imagination. When I began this leg of my journey into the entertainment industry, you may find it interesting to know that my background before this was all commercial real estate and that I built Black Hall Studios as a specialty real estate project for production giants like Disney, Sony, Warner Brothers, and Universal to have a place to apply their skilled craft of production. I'm from Los Angeles, but I moved to Atlanta six years ago. I've done business all over the world, and I know a few places with the dynamism of Atlanta. It's a world-class city with a huge economic future as a center of commerce for a global economy. On this podcast, we get local and global and talk to people who are inspirational, sensational, sometimes motivational, but at all times somehow tied to the ecosystem that is the culture and business of entertainment as it relates to Black Hall Studios. Norman Bellingham has been described as a man who truly embodies the Olympic spirit and its values. A Harvard undergrad and a Harvard MBA, Norman Bellingham became interested in sports through his love of the outdoors. A sprint kayaker, Bellingham reached his pinnacle performance when he took home the gold at the 1998 Seoul Summer Games. From athlete to executive, Norman eventually became the chief operating officer of the United States Olympic Committee and has served the organization as a consultant, a supporter, and as an athlete for almost four decades. A surprisingly humble guy, Norman Bellingham is the real deal. Father, friend, and U.S. Olympic gold medalist. I know you'll like this talk. Hi, this is Ryan Millsap. Welcome to the Black Hall Podcast. Today, we are fortunate to have Norman Bellingham on with us. He's a former Olympic gold medalist, former member of the U.S. Olympic Committee. Norman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for taking the time. Where are you sheltering in place or quarantining? I'm in Colorado Springs on the side of Cheyenne Mountain, looking out over the plains. God, what a beautiful part of the country. I have uh, uncles who who are from that part of the world. They used to run a turf farm called West Turf Farm in, in Colorado Springs. And we used to spend a lot of time out there when I was a kid. There's few places as beautiful as the Colorado Rockies. Oh, it's gorgeous. And you know, these are wonderful people out here, too. The kind of people that built the country. So true. Wait, how long have you lived there? I've been here since 2006, although I did live here for a couple of years in the mid-90s. It doesn't qualify me as a native, but uh, my daughters have grown up here now, so they consider themselves Colorado girls. What part of the country did you grow up in? My father was in the Foreign Service. Uh, actually, he was in the CIA. Um, I didn't know it at the time. but uh, So I grew up in Asia for the most part, although I did spend a lot of time in the D.C. area. I went to 
some of junior high school and then high school there um, in Rockville, Maryland, just outside of D.C. And uh, uh, that's where I went to high school. And I was in college and grad school up in Boston. And when, when you go to grad school in Boston, does that always mean Harvard? It does. It does. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I usually ask people when they when they tell me they went to grad school in Boston, I say, "Oh, BU," but they but they always mean Harvard. I know, you know. <laughs> so they teach so, us that early on. You always say you say Boston. That's what they, 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 I know it's like a, it's a cultural norm. What was it like finding out it, your dad was in the CIA, and when did you find that out? Wow, that's a story I haven't told. Um, I found out when a friend of mine who I we we lived in Nepal together was visiting us in DC and we were talking about the old days when we were living in Kathmandu and he kept talking about my father uh, not being in the State Department, which I believe he had been, but was in, the, in uh, the intelligence side of things. And I went and asked my father about it. I was probably 14, 15 years old. And uh, my father sat me down and said, yes, actually that's what I did. So he was in um, uh, clandestine services. So. The work he was doing was of the sort that you didn't share it with all the members of your family. My older brother found out sooner than I did, but I, I found out at that age. What was your emotional response to finding out your dad was a clandestine agent? It's interesting. Um, my older brother thought it was very cool. I actually uh, felt somewhat deceived uh, in the sense <laughs> I grew up in sort of believing that the, the height of ambition, if I wanted to follow in the footsteps of my father, was to try to maybe be an ambassador. I always also wondered why he didn't seem to have any ambition to be an ambassador. He was high up. He was chief of station in, in uh, Nepal, but uh, he didn't seem to have an interest in uh, seeking an ambassadorship in another country, which would have been uh, the next path he would have taken, or the next step he would have taken on a path should he, you know, had he been in the State Department. So I felt, um, well, I'll put it this way, I had to go through a period of adjustment to, to come to terms with the fact that he wasn't what I thought he was. Did you address that with him? I mean, did you psychologically process through that or did you just feel like, all right, I'm 15, I got to just swallow this and move on. And now I don't know how the world works, but I know I need to keep my head on a swivel. It was more the latter. I mean, he didn't disclose much of what he had done. Um, right. So I, I really didn't have much information to put context around it in. Just sort of deal with that and move on. Um, Frankly, I wasn't necessarily that interested at that stage in, in the sort of things he was doing. Um, it wasn't a world that had captured my interest up till then. I mean, that is, I wasn't a big reader of Jean Le Carre. I was, you know, 15 years old and I wasn't, you know, I, what I knew about spies was basically James Bond and things like that. And that's not what he was. He was clearly involved in some pretty meaningful activities in that, that part of the world. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You made a comment earlier about the people that built America, and it struck me because my father was a Special Forces recon Marine in Vietnam. He didn't talk a lot about that at all until later in life. And when he started to share openly, it was incredibly helpful to me to understanding his soul and understanding where he came from and why he was the way he was in many ways. And it brought me a lot of peace. Where yeah, go Where ahead. Where had he grown up? He grew up in Springfield, Missouri, in the Ozark Mountains. Oh, wow. That's America. They're just very special people, remarkable people come from the Midwest. And I mean, those are frontier areas back, you know, 
probably a little bit before his time, but nonetheless, there were still elements of the frontier out there and pretty special people came out of um, those areas. It's the truth. So, you know, my, my dad is multi-generation Southern Missouri. My mm-hmm. mom is multi-generation Nebraska and grew up on a cattle ranch in northern Nebraska in a little town called Valentine. And I'll tell you what, you don't realize it, or I didn't realize it growing up, but the amount of time I got to spend in southern Missouri and Nebraska with those soulful people, you know, growing up on the West Coast, but then getting to spend a lot of time in the Midwest, in retrospect, I see how invaluable it was in the shaping of my soul. Yeah, my mother grew up in a dairy farm in Bemidji, Minnesota, and during a couple of few of the summers, we had R&R with, uh, we'd get sent back to work on the farm with my older brother. It gave you insight as to the people that emigrated up to this this country and, and uh, just by force of character made it. And you know, I think the places like Nebraska, if you look at the plains of Kansas and as it goes in eastern, uh, eastern plains, Colorado, the, the high desert area, people that were the backbone of this country when it was coming into its, its fullness. Well, these people take nothing for granted and they expect no one to fix it for them. That's which true. is what's that rugged self-sufficiency. The, the, the thing that, you know, makes me philosophically fascinated in this is right, you know, right now, Wisconsin, I, I think, you, you know, you probably saw the Wisconsin Supreme Court just ruled that the governor had no right to tell people to shelter in place. What do you think about how this American ethos of rugged independence matches or mismatches with the ethics or decisions that need to be made inside of a pandemic? Well, I struggle with that. I mean, are we moving towards an increasingly socialistic society where people have to do what's best for the collective society, or do we respect individual spirit that was such a part of the creation of country. Um, I understand both sides of it. Um, I would think that you know, we're moving towards the former, that is the socialist side, but there's some real downside to that. So maybe we're moving towards some sort of sense of greater stillness, that is people may migrate from the, the cities and so forth into smaller communities where they protect themselves from things like these pandemics still be creative and come to know themselves individuals and bring the benefit of that individuality to uh, their communities and to larger society. I, I don't know what the answer is to all that. How do you think that America is learning about itself in this crazy chaos of the pandemic? I don't know if America is necessarily yet learning about themselves. People are coming close to their families that they're, you know, up down with my two daughters and wife. And I think getting closer and coming to know one another than we had ever since the girls were in elementary school. So that's a positive thing. Uh, it's bringing us closer together. And maybe there's a greater sense of um, responsibility to one's local community um, as a result of this. I think the lessons are, are, are still to be learned. I don't know if we've undergone a great period of reflection quite yet is what this all does mean. How old are your daughters? Uh, I have a, a freshman in college and a junior in college. So I have a uh, 19-year-old and a 21-year-old. 
they're just getting out on their own and now they get to come back to the nest for a minute. Yeah, they weren't happy about that initially, but they've adapted. You know, they're young, so this is the new normalcy. What kind of things have you guys as a family been talking about when you've had this, you know, really unique time? I mean, I've experienced it too, just this really unique time of of having what feels like a step back in time, 50 or 100 years family time. You know, it does feel like that. Sometimes I do think about this is how people on frontiers used to behave in a regular manner. That is, they were always together as a family and they would sit around and have conversations about, you know, whatever was the topic of the day. So I think as an example, the other days there was a judgment came down um, against uh, large, large part the uh, women's soccer team, women's national team, as it related to their fighting for equal pay. And so just brought up that subject for discussion and we looked into it and we're trying to understand why the judge made a decision that he made, what this means in sports. Does society owe women an opportunity to make as much money as men do in the professional leagues? Why are people fighting against this so much? If you read the rhetoric and some of the comments that newspapers and so forth in the comment sections, um, they're pretty misogynist, harsh. You know, where does that come from? What is the what's driving the fear, and what does society do to put these things in the long run? You know, you use the existing models and structures and laws, or you can potentially look at reshaping some of those to to rectify those things that are to half our to many people in our society is somewhat unjust. I mean, that's the sort of thing we talk about. Um, I don't know if we go down that path all the time. A lot of times, it's, you know, you think about named Tiger King or people like that. Um, so you know, we certainly have a lot of discussions like that. But it's, it's by and large just allowing each other to, to talk. And I think we're probably looking to one another a, a lot more and getting to know our respective characters and you know, a lot more listening, um, much less volatility in those, in those comments. And uh, I think in large, it's very, very healthy. Well, when I look at your life, you know, what I know of it, I see a lot of vision and discipline to accomplish all the things that you have. How much of that do you think you were born with? And how much of it do you think was inculcated in you through your childhood and upbringing? Oh, I think I, I think some of it is, is that is you're born with, with things, but I, by and large, I was presented with a lot of opportunities. And I was very fortunate to find myself amongst um, a group of Makers in the D.C. area, uh, Whitewater Solemn Race, who were world class. And uh, there was a coach there that was a bit of a philosopher. He knew nine languages and he was devoting his time to the sport and the training of the athletes as a volunteer. And uh, these people really took me under their wings and taught me about harnessing one's passion, applying discipline to that. And coming up with some good results that showed you the value of those basic like hard work and planning and goals. And if you learn that at a young age, uh, the benefits really continue to transfer on to other things the rest of your life, as long as you reflect back on it and don't think it as an isolated incident. You think it's just a process that can be transferred to other things, you know, the, the laws of pursuing influence are relatively the same in, in, in most fields. I think it was the environment 
by and large that uh, that shaped who I was, and particularly my exposure to that people and uh, to this coach in particular. So this winter, I was talking to Bodie Miller about his career, and he was wonderfully humble and candid about this notion that, in his mind, he wasn't the best athlete. And frankly, in a lot of people's minds who were analysts, he wasn't the best athlete compared to his peers. And Bodie just said, I just was willing to outwork them and outrisk them. How do you describe, like, when you think of your success, how do you describe your success as an athlete mentally? Like, what was your edge, and how did you get there? I was able to, um, with with assistant, hook up with some great athletes. Uh, in, in first the sport whitewater slalom, and I sh- I switched to uh, flat sprint. That's what I raced at the Olympics, and, and uh, that I went down to New Zealand, where the best team in the West Western world was. Playing. They were the ones taking on the East Germans and the Russians. They were older than me, and they were kind enough to share their process for achieving the levels that they were at. They were they had taken lessons from other sports, from track and field, and they were always inquiring outside their um their circle into sports and other fields to understand how people had achieved excellence and they worked incredibly hard as well i mean i remember being so exhausted in training one time that was after my first two or three weeks in new zealand and i said to this fellow ian Ferger, he'd won three gold medals at that time at the games and said you know this must be the hardest part of training because i was dizzy i could barely I could walk or think I was you know, just trying to get down to practice, do another one, and I'd go back and sleep. He said, you know, he said, I'm saying, Mike, you know, we're just stuck. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, this is um, going to be a lot harder than I thought it was. These people are willing to work incredibly hard. So understanding that there's always another level up you can do, that there's, you know, there's no set, certainly not an eight to five, nine to five activity. And you're thinking about basically 24 hours a day. And when I say 24 hours, you think about your sleep in the context of it helping you to recover for your next session. And I think that's true. You know, if you, for the people trying to figure out semiconductors of Bell Labs or whatever, I mean, that's, you become almost obsessed with the endeavor that you're in. And it's fun, frankly. That's a, a lot of it as well. You get to the group of people that you're having fun with, you're exchanging ideas. I think those are, key elements uh, that I always look for is finding people that I can um, spend time with and uh, that I enjoy and who have similar goals and uh, they're willing to exchange um, ideas. Finding people that are willing to engage in a two-way street that way is important. And frankly, I didn't have too much to offer other than I was young blood. Uh, I was a deal younger than those guys. And uh, was willing to just keep coming to practice and working incredibly hard with and my success among them was an affirmation of them their system was working. I saw that in part of the role. Well, part of success is that grind, but part of the ability to survive the grind is finding things to do that you actually find joyful, which it sounds like you love the process. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you become fascinated in the process. I think that's the key thing is the process is the process. And so you, you throw your son to that, but it, trying to improve the process, really, really understand it so you can iterative improvements. And you know, you're so lucky you can dream of new things that 
are disruptive to the process. It takes a whole new level. I never did that, but the, that took place. While I was support and I was able to adapt to those changes um, along with the group. You just come fully absorbed by that, and it assists you in your. It gives you a sense of identity. You're you're a goal seeker, and you come to believe that this goal of becoming a fat kayaker, which frankly doesn't matter much in the larger scheme of things, uh, isn't. I remember asking the guys, you know, why are we doing this? Why are we basically killing ourselves to try to be fast kayakers? I mean, I can understand why these Germans and Russians are doing it because it's important to the nation state that they do, uh, that they present themselves as a successful system on the world at the games. But why are we doing it? They just said, look, you know, it's, you know, what else are you going to do with your life? We can push stand of humanity in this small little area and that should be like a fun thing to do and if we can get away with it we're going to keep doing it and that was it for me that was enough for me plus i love being on i mean kayaking is wonderful it's similar to rowing and other sports that get you out of nature you're on the water uh, you're enjoying being outside and you're with other people so you're getting to compete for fun so it's kind of like playing outside all the time well, you know, I found sports to be incredibly grounding. You know, I I definitely was a more ethereal personality and, and to be able to have my feet on the ground and, you know, my hands on a ball and, you know, somebody pushing against me trying to uproot me was enough to spiritually ground me into the earth in a deeper way than I probably would have otherwise lived. So I'm incredibly grateful to sports. Where have you experienced all these lessons you learned in sport? Because they sound like they carried right over into a lot of the other things you've, you've done with your career. In business, sometimes, you know, whether it be a nonprofit or for profit, you look at the larger projects you're working on, and there's usually something very legitimate about those projects, and they are seeing the company and inspects the industry and by extension, making humanity ideally a little bit better off. And if you can find that justification for work and you find it interesting, then therefore justify uh, throwing yourself into it full stop. That is, you know, it's, again, all you think and sleep, you know, and, and dream about, you know, but as you get here, you have family and so forth. So you just uh, take time for all that to ensure you have some kind of balance. But, uh, you push yourself pretty darn hard, and great things come from that. People are attracted to that. It's also that's the other thing I found that was really interesting. Really good people are attracted to that sort of passion and some sense of action. It may be something that's um, in hindsight relatively small or not that meaningful. At the time, it seemed like it was really important, and something like you're involved closely with some sort of pursuit that is, you know, that has some importance pushes you to your limits or pushes you to them. And doing that with other people who are also feeling the same thing. And that's just a, um, it's a wonderful connection. I got a, just a note from some, from the old kayaking world the other day. And you know, they were talking about glory, you know, remembering the glory day. And he was, it was just, a, he had a picture of with a smile on his face and he was reflecting back on when we were training. It wasn't the racing. It was the training together and pushing one another. And I think that some of the people I've worked with, we feel the same way uh, when we meet up with each other again. I, was, I did a Zoom conference with some old work colleagues, and I think 
that's um, remembering those times is what the smiles we see on each other's faces when we see each other again, because it brings us back to a time when we were pursuing something that maybe has been completely forgotten and maybe wasn't all that important, but we thought it was, and, and we had a great time together. Have you been watching the Michael Jordan documentary called The Last Dance on ESPN? I've seen some of the episodes. I haven't seen them all. I think I've seen a few. What have been some of your takeaways as an athlete watching one of the greatest athletes of all time from a success standpoint as they as they start to unmask some of the you know the life of Jordan inside of sport? What have been some of your takeaways watching that? Well, uh, first is you know the extraordinary athleticism of those guys. Um, they really were remarkable, particularly Jordan. And I remember at the time, we're talking the late 80s and 90s, when Jordan was playing, it was inspirational to everybody around the world. People, you couldn't have to watch him and think, you know, this is magnificent what our species is capable of doing. Uh, so that, that comes back in a way that I don't know if anybody is really, um, I've, I've felt that way about anybody since that time. So that's one of the first things that hits me. But the, other thing that all that, that it's almost shocking to me, but I knew it at the time, was the extraordinary difference in lifestyles and um, uh, activities that one got up to um, outside of sport. Uh, that is, I mean, these people were like like rock stars beyond that level, and um, so that um, I wasn't fully aware of all those details, and so that's. Um, I have to admit I'm somewhat fascinated in, in all of that. I'll, I have no envy for it. I think more that um, it's amazing that those guys survived all that in one piece. And I would guess there's a whole other story to be told about how the NBA and others helped people uh, manage that transition to a world in which everybody wanted a piece of them, and they were being tempted every every you know every level. Um, how did they stay alive? They have, you know, avoid issues like addiction, and uh, maybe they didn't completely. But uh, uh, how did they? How did they keep their head on heads on their shoulders and, and keep focusing on the real task at hand, which was to perform well on the court day in and day out? I find that fascinating, I, and it just you want to know more, frankly. Have you ever read the book The Inner Game of Tennis? Oh, years and years ago. That was one of the early, I think that was maybe the first sports psychology book that came out um, uh, talking about, what did they talk about? That was about um, really getting in your head, right? And, and also understanding what was going on with, with, with your, your opponent as well from a psychological standpoint, moving away from just the technical analysis of the game. That's right. I mean, it was, it was, it was all really focused on what I took away is like the spiritual exercise that athletics turns out to be. What do you think about that notion? The notion that, like, I, I think of sports as almost like a Buddhist practice. Wow. How do you respond to that? I think there's something extraordinary special about sports that you know teaches young people indirectly beauty of being fully engaged mentally and physically in something and pushing yourself to the limits. Um, Yes, and that that's almost a spiritual thing. Um, it's a wholeness. Um, it's not just an intellectual act. 
guys, it's not just you know, physical labor. You're pulling upon all your resources, mental and physical, to do something, and you're relying upon a group of other people working along with you, either in training or actually in, in an event, to do the same. You know, in a team boat rowing or in a, like basketball when you're with the team. Um, that's a particular special feeling when everybody is fully engaged, mind and body that way. I don't know if that's quite what the Dalai Lama teaches. I don't know if, if the Buddhists, uh, I don't think of them as engaging in sports, but I think it does connect you to a greater degree than most other activities with yourself and the, with the world. Um, you're fully alive at that moment. I think mountaineers talk a lot about that, particularly because you know the element of risk there that takes it, you know, adds another factor yet again that makes you feel that much more alive. So there is something spiritual about sports. Certainly, I, you, you say that, and I think of Eric Lipp, the, the great athlete from Scotland, in the 1920s, who was immortalized in *Chariots of Fire*. Of missionaries who spent time in China, and then he went back to China as a missionary after winning gold at the 24 Paris Games. And I think he understood the beauty of, of sport and how it affected him something larger. And is that God? What, what is that? I, I, don't, uh, I don't know. It's something very powerful. I love his great quote where he says, I feel God's pleasure when I run. You know, the, the writer of that screenplay, Christopher Wellen, who's, who's since passed, is, um, I always thought he was almost divinely direct when he wrote that. Because I've read the screenplay a number of times, and there's a number of scenes that are left out. Um, it seems as if, he, uh, as if he really truly understood all those characters at a level that um, is almost inexplicable inexplicable and they talk about the making of the film and it's as if every time something got to go wrong the clouds would break and one would come in and uh, I remember reading hearing the uh, director talk about it uh, they look up at the sky and say ah Eric's looking out after us it was important that they tell his story uh, that was his story was um, that really sparked the creation of the film. Although also the story of the Jewish runner, Abrams, was the one that uh, proved to be as captivating because it captured the spirit of the rising, increasingly um, specialized professional athlete pursuing excellence and uh, somewhat rejecting the older approach. Um, so that uh, the contrast was remarkable. Though you know, obviously the two respected each other greatly and. In real life, um, it was Eric Little that introduced Harold Abram to uh, that coach, Sam Musambini, who, who um, he took Harold to his, his gold medal winning performance in 100 meters. So they were, they were close. They worked together. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. So it sounds to me like you experienced some similar things as an athlete where you, um, you might describe it differently, but you probably resonate with something along the lines of, I feel God's pleasure when I run. Where else in your life have you experienced in your career, in your career life, where do you look back and say, God, that was happiness. That was joy. That was real. I was alive. Oh, I've worked on a couple of big projects um, that required myself, and it was usually a small group, two or three other people. Um, working on something that was 
critical to the company. Uh, one case was at the Olympic Committee, the other case was at Turn Broadcasting. And in both cases, we truly felt that the work we were doing was um, going to make a huge difference for the future of the company and would also be a great value to the industry or to the world as a whole. We threw ourselves into that full stop. It was exciting. Uh, I think you know, it was the sort of thing where we're emailing, texting, calling each other at all hours of the night. Uh, you know, you couldn't wait to get, you couldn't wait to wake up in the morning and, and start again. When you get those opportunities, you you grab them, uh, you grab them, uh, you seize them. You know, it's the idea of eight knocking uh, quietly sometimes at the door. You've got to you've got to be aware and. When the opportunity, if you do and you recognize it, uh, you seize the opportunity and you go for it. A number of people are doing that. Other people, the sort of people that matter that are interested in the same things, they migrate to you, to you they gravitate towards you, and, and it just becomes that much more special. Both the instances I have in my mind, it, um, there's somebody with a very clear vision as to what this all means. They sort of serve as the primary call driving that process and the others kind of smaller cogs and and then there's these surrounding entities that also come in to, to play a role the power of the system really begins to uh, hit full force and it, it's pretty remarkable uh, because you feel that you sense it and uh, it does do wonderful things I mean you're growing something you're creating something it's it's life you know necessarily it's it's uh, it's something man-made but it's still uh, very special well, when I think of happiness, you know, I think of a lot of different things. But imagine that your daughters came to you, right? Your daughters came to you and they said, Dad, how do I find happiness? What do you tell them? One of the first courses, pieces of that equation is knowing who you are, but how do you find out who you are? And if you can find something that you're passionate about and you can find others who feel the same way, then you throw yourself into that. And I, you know, that the bliss comes from that experience, the, the flow that you, you experience as you become an excellent something and you're involved with others that are also you know, performing at a high level in that area. And it gives you a sense of identity. It gives you, you know, a sense of who you are. You, you are shaping your character and coming to your character as well. And you're growing as, as a person. Uh, I think that gives a sense of fullness in a, in a manly way that, that, that's, uh, that is, you know, pursuing things uh, that society uh, puts before us opportunities. That's, that's one way to do it. Those are my thoughts on, on, on how one finds in which they're going and rebirthing them, so to speak. Um, that's, um, I think you've been doing that your whole life, uh, always finding a new way to to keep growing. I mean, it sounds almost trite to say it, but I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, and I think that gives a sense of purpose. It, it, if it's tied to a passion and it's tied to your identity, it gives you a greater sense of wholeness. That, that will often lead to something close to happiness, I think. Now, you've gotten to be a leader. You've gotten to serve under other, I think, really great leaders. I know. Uh, Peter Ubaroth has just an incredible reputation as a as a leader. 
well, tell me about like some of that experience, you know, the, the vision behind that, the strategy behind that. I mean, take us behind the scenes about, you know, how do people put on an Olympics? What does that look like? Peter was an, an extraordinary individual. And that's what attracted me to work for him. Um, he contacted me kind of out of the blue back in 2006. Um, and he had a, a vision. I mean, he was clearly somebody, I don't know if he's a visionary, but he had a clear vision as to how it should be in a world which was relatively stayed and, and stagnant. Um, the Olympic world, they operate in a monopoly type environment and Peter thought of ways in which it could be taken to a completely different level. And he didn't tolerate people that were putting up obstacles that were um, unnecessary. And he pushed himself, pushed others incredibly hard to get towards that vision and to get you to buy into it as well. Uh, so Peter was a little old school. Sometimes he had mentors with a stick, but um, he, uh, that is, <laughs> He, he, I would talk to Peter, like I was probably talking there 15, 20 hours a week at, at times. And uh, it was always, what did you, what, what did you do today? What did you do yesterday? Um, you know, what are you going to do tomorrow? You know, and why didn't you do that already? And it was forcing to get frustrated, but he was putting you know, myself and others to stretch ourselves to levels that we were uncomfortable with. But, you know, Often, as is the case, you know, prize ourselves that we could get things done that people, um, frankly, ourselves, we didn't think could be done. So, uh, Peter reimagining the games in '84 it was just a reflection of that same sort of spirit. Uh, I hope he's given enough credit outside of the um, United States for what he did, but it was pretty remarkable. The games almost died in, in the '80s. There had been they caught of the, the Moscow game, and then. There was no other city other than Los Angeles that was willing to take on the task of hosting maybe your games because cities would lose so much money. Montreal bought a billion dollars in 1976 hosting the games. And Peter changed the model and uh, harnessed the, the, the value of entertainment, but also was incredibly respectful of the athletes and the spirit that they were bringing to the field play, to the arena as a whole. It made a magical environment and it completely reinvigorated the movement and inspired the whole economic standpoint, changing uh, how much money came in from television and sponsors. But it, I think it, it triggered a new group of athletes, you know, young people that watched these four games on TV in Los Angeles were inspired to maybe do something else with their lives and pursue a very high level of sport. The, the ripple effects from somebody like Peter were extraordinary. That's the sort of thing when I've been with groups of people pursuing the highest levels. You often hear those sort of comments from people that are on the periphery. They're saying, well, after the fact, saying, what you guys were doing, so-and-so was doing within that group inspired me. And it was never the intention to inspire somebody else, but it is a wonderful, um, wonderful output of, of engaging that sort of process. So when you, when you think about what we're going through as a country right now, and we're running out of time, so I want to I want to ask you a couple questions about America and your vision for America. All the things we're going through right now, um, obviously, is a time where there's a lot of leadership needed. 
but when I think of like the next generation, like what is the, you know, the next generation of Americans, what are some of your hopes? Like maybe, maybe tell me two hopes for the fundamental character of what it means to be an American that you hope is not lost. And in fact, maybe even enhanced in the next generation of Americans. I'd like to think this lockdown period results in a somewhat extended period of reflection for Americans in which we think about remember what really matters. And think about those previous generations, the ones that built the country, what values they had that they went through to build into a modern empire, so to speak. And uh, how do we do something of a similar magnitude? Uh, clearly, the existing system has many things right now. If we can reflect on those in a positive way and try to identify ways to move forward so that we can encounter future challenges in a more productive manner and in a more collectively um, productive manner than is the case right now. I'd like to think you know, that's one of the outcomes. The, the implementation uh, of the country and political groups certainly doesn't feel productive. And that's painful to, to watch as that continues. But um, I'd like to think that there is a coming together increasing, maybe in smaller communities. Um, and people focus, you know, that is, they don't necessarily need to stay in small villages, but coming together physically in smaller communities and engaging with one another through the benefits of technology with the large world and harnessing the great value of the people of, of the country to um, for society to get back in a position where we really thrive yet again. And it doesn't just allow growth in the economy, but allow for individuals to thrive, be creative, and, and find, you know, allow more individuals to find out who they are. I'd like to think there's that coupled with the, the, you know, the resetting value that we have um, away from some of the consumer and materialism that really has been rampant and driving uh, our society. Hope there's a step back from that to reflect on what really matters. It was one of my favorite quotes from Cherokee Fires. Uh, Abrams is toasting at Coach Sambini after he'd won and says to him something along the lines of, you know, uh, stop, stop, stop. Uh, he talks, Sam tells Harold that, you care about what really matters. And if you hadn't, I wouldn't have come within a million miles of you. Something along those lines. And, and I'll reflect on, you know, what does that mean? What really matters? And I think it's caring about things bigger than oneself. And as much as Harold was caring, did care about how he did himself, it was about pushing this. He, what he really cared about was pushing the standards of mankind and uh, what he could play in that. I'd like to think that that sort of spirit be harnessed in most people. Maybe our society could do more of that and do so in a way that's keeping in the of, of maybe those generations that, that had come before us. Staying with our sports team a little bit, you know, I think when we watch the game film of the COVID era, at least <laughs> COVID part one or pandemic part one, I think we'll look back and say, man, we were really bad at that. We were just not ready. We weren't prepared. We weren't we weren't um, mentally prepared, physically prepared. We had no idea really how to deal with such a an opponent. 
And the beauty in my mind, I mean, one of the many beauties, but one of the beautiful things about Americans is that Americans aren't afraid to fail and get better. It's one of the things that makes us so wonderfully entrepreneurial, right? Because you can't be an entrepreneur if you truly have a fear of failure. You can't be a great athlete if you're afraid to go to take on opponents that might beat you. But the only way that you can rise to the top is if you're willing to take your failures and examine them with very clear eyes and be very, very eyes wide open with yourself. So as you, as you look at like how we've handled this pandemic, what do you think some of the lessons will be as we reflect on how we handled pandemic 1.0? Big one that strikes me, and I think it makes it the core uh, strategist, that we deeply as a, as a society underestimated the value of for these types of things that could have been, that had been seen. We knew that pandemics could happen. There should have been a plan. There should have been multiple plans for various scenarios that, that, that could have uh, unfolded. And I think visiting that sort of preparation, if you will, is an important, and putting more value on that. So we stop just, it's, we, we move away from a short-term knee-jerk responses to uh, things that hit us to real planning and valuing that and understanding that uh, it is a worthwhile endeavor for people to engage in and for leaders to to both uh, be involved with themselves, but also to, I heard that it was the, the new Disney CEO, Disney's new CEO say that, you know, TV was the other day, he said, uh, could never have seen this coming. Well, actually, you know, <laughs> people did see this coming. And I was kind of stunned to hear that they didn't have a in place. They, they just, they had a, a early iteration of the plan in place, but they really didn't get to the next level. And I think that could, you know, we, we could have done a better job with that. So I'd like to think that uh, that's one of the bigger takeaways is that we as a collective society look at how other things could hit our system. We, we are an increasingly fragile society and there will be other things. We need to prepare for those. So this isn't going to be a one-off. It may, it may not be a pandemic that hits us next time. Maybe there's a computer virus that attacks everything and shuts things down. What do we do if nobody has internet access for a month? Uh, what it, it shuts down the banking system and so forth? How do we deal with that? It's best if we not try to figure it out on the fly and try to let politicians give us you know, their soundbite answers as to what needs to be done. It'd be great if, if, if a number of experts had really thought this through in advance and that they're allowed to help lead the conversation to, to a greater degree than is you know, presently the case in those situations. You know, so I think that's one of the takeaways, not that um, experts need to be the one that are listened to, but I would like to think that we do take the time to realize that there will be additional challenges in our increasingly fragile system. And we should be prepared well thought through responses to those. How do we respond? What should be value systems of individual, larger society as, as we um, go the path of, of, of dealing with those issues? 
Well, Norman, it has been such a pleasure to get to have this conversation with somebody as experienced and thoughtful as yourself. I really appreciate being on our program. How can people find you if they want to try to look for you online or hunt you down? Do you have any social media? Is that a thing you do or how can people find you? Oh, I suppose on Facebook and LinkedIn, but um, I think probably the easiest way for somebody to get a hold of me is, is just via my email, nbellingham at comcast.net is how they can get a hold of me. I love that's it. Simplest. Well, that's a, that's a very direct way, and I appreciate it. Thanks for being on the program. I'd love to do it again sometime if you have time. It's been great to talk to you. We enjoyed it. Thanks, Norman. Have a great day. I'll leave you guys with thoughts that I write on Instagram. The entire world is yours today. The universe has told it to exist just for you. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap.